It's an honor and encouragement to us to have you here, and we hope that we can encourage you. We want to uh, give a congratulations to our seniors of 2007 that are graduating. What a wonderful occasion in their life, an accomplishment in their life, and we wish them and our prayers for them are for the best, and that as they look uh, to the future, that their plans would be to go with God. And as we think about that pathway today of what path we'll be on, our prayer is that their path, the decisions that they make in their life will always be the decisions to stay close to God. We're thankful for you. You brought a lot of joy and encouragement in our life, and we look forward to seeing what God's going to do with the rest of your life. It's exciting to think about the addition of Bible classes. Ten more Bible classes is a tremendous need at this time. Uh, several of you are in Bible classes that either you walk across a couple of parking lots to get to those classes or you sit out in an open area where people are coming and going to get to other classes. And it's kind of uh, awesome to think about. We might actually have everybody inside a classroom that's right here on this, uh, in this building. And it's also exciting to think of the ability to have handicap accessibility to most of our building. Uh, Andrew has done such a wonderful job working with our educational department. One of his great challenges each time classes are organized for a quarter is trying to make sure that the people that want to go to a certain class can get to that classroom physically. And sometimes it's almost impossible because there's only so much you can do with the limited number of classrooms that we have on ground floor level. And so that is going to be a blessing in so many ways to have uh, availability throughout the building for most everyone and just to simply have the increased room. Uh, the two services have been a great blessing uh, for our seating in the auditorium, but we've needed some kind of relief in the classrooms. Let's be prayerful about it that God's will will be done throughout all of this. In 1943, there were several young people close to the age of our seniors that are graduating this year that were training to fly B-24 bombers in the war. There was one particular crew of nine men. The younger ones would laugh at them because they were the old guys. You see, this particular crew, most of them were either 23 or 24 years old. One of them was even 27 years old. The younger guys called this crew the pops of the group. They looked up to them and they were a very skilled group of individuals. But yet their story is really a sad story. Their maiden voyage, May 4th of 1924, they left Libya to go north to Naples, uh, Italy, with a squadron uh, to drop their bombs. They took off in a terrible windstorm. The sand was blowing everywhere across the desert there. They got separated from the group. The wind was blowing them off course. When they finally did arrive to the place they were to drop their bombs, we're not exactly sure why they didn't, but it was believed because the rest of the squadron had already dropped the bombs and returned back. As they returned back, they continued to have difficulty. They were blown off course apparently several times. They were fearful of low fuel, so they dropped their bombs in the Mediterranean. The last contact that was known to them over the radio, Lieutenant Hayden said that their ADF, which was their uh, positioning equipment, uh, was failing them. They didn't know where they were. The irony is, in the clouds... In the storm, they flew over the base on the return home. They still thought they were over the Mediterranean Sea. They continued flying in spite of the fact that on the ground, flares were shot into the air trying to show them 
that they were home. They flew deeper and deeper into a land or a sea of sand. When they finally decided that they were going to run out of fuel, they put their parachutes on thinking they were over water. They parachuted. Seven of the nine were able to find each other with flare guns and sounding of pistols. They looked at their maps and they decided that they were only a hundred miles away from their base. They began traveling northeast. That was a terrible decision. They were in a desert and they were actually 400 miles away from base. They should have gone southeast toward the plain that had water and food, a radio, and also an oasis that would have been closer by. But instead, they begin the march. And experts today even say that they shouldn't have been able to make it more than 20 miles. One of the men, 2nd Lieutenant Toner, began keeping just a few lines each day of a journal. We'll look at some of those remarks tonight. But in this journal, he told about how all of them were able to make the trek for five days, traveling 80 miles. They would travel at night, 30 to 45 minutes marching, 15 minutes to rest, over and over, and sleep in the heat of the day. Finally, after the fifth day, the dehydration was taking away their vision and their strength. One man was totally blind, and the other four were unable to travel any further. The other three decided they would continue traveling, seeking help, and amazingly, one made it 21 miles further north before he collapsed. A second one is unknown where he ever made it, but a third one was able to make it a total of 109 miles in search. Now, that story's vague because it wasn't for 16 years, in 1959, after this occasion, that any of this was ever known. Because for that long, no one ever found the aircraft. It was a British oil surveying crew that ended up finding the aircraft, and then later, men went over to search for the men and found them, their remains, uh, the things that they had with them, including the notes. There's some valuable lessons in that. One is simply this, how dangerous it is when we don't know where we are. Our young people that grew up here, I hope and pray you know the path that God wants you to lead. But I hope you can know today where you are. I hope you can know that you're on that path. And I hope you can see clearly by faith what that path ought to be and where you ought to be in the weeks and the months and the years to come. Some of our young people will probably go into jobs. Others will go into school this fall. Whatever your plans are, I want to encourage you to go against the grain of our society. Society would tell you that these are your years. This is the years to concentrate on you. It's the time for you to go to school, for you to get your studies, for you to go to work, for you to have a career, for you to find a spouse, for you to make the major decisions of your life. And I want to urge you to realize this is a time for you to live God's will. This is a time for you to find out what is God's will for you in your life. And make sure that if you go off to college, you go off to college to say, how does God want me to live in this place? I hope whenever one of our youth visit back next fall, we can say, hey, where are you going to church? And you can tell us every detail about where you have committed your life of service and worship while you're away from here. Young people, these next several years are no different than all the other years. 
they're not about you. They're about God. They're about how God is going to use you in His kingdom. Wherever you go, go with God. As we think about this story, the part that we read this morning in the introduction of this text that we'll continue with later on this evening, we read the fact that Jesus made a decision to leave. He was in Judea, and He left. And if you'll notice in verse 5, He comes into the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Now, as we think about this, it's interesting to me as, as I study a little deeper, deeper about this city, this is what Merrill Tenney said in a commentary on John. He says, the place of the interview was Sychar. In the interview, he's talking about Jesus sitting down with the woman at the well. And he says, the place of the interview was Sychar near it. The city stood at a fork of the road, one branch of which went toward Capernaum and the other branch to Nazareth. The well of Jacob was located about a half a mile from the village. Now, reading further into the chapter, we would probably think that Jesus took the branch that would go through Nazareth and then on up into Canaan. But you see, Jesus literally was at a fork in a road as this event takes place. Life is made up of decisions. Every one of us can go back and we'd see decisions that we made that have led us to this point. And so now at graduation, you're at a natural fork in the road. What decisions will you make? Let's notice the decisions that Jesus made, and we can learn from those that got Him to this particular place in His life. When we go back again to John, the fourth chapter, look again, if you will, at verse 1 and 3. When you look at John 4 and 1, 2, and 3, notice how in verse 1 it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew... Now drop down and read the first of verse 3. He left Judea. You see, those go together. When the Lord knew, He left Judea. What did He know? He knew this. He knew that the Pharisees knew that he was having more disciples than John the Baptist. Now, he knew that was going to create quite a commotion. There was going to be a lot of talk about how many people were now becoming followers of Jesus Christ. He knew that would spark envy and jealousy. Remember, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified because of the envy of the Jews. And so he knew that the Pharisees were going to be sparked with this jealousy. In other words, he knew this. It wasn't His time to be offered. The hour was not at hand. And so because of that, the Scriptures tells us here, He knew it was time for Him to leave Judea and to travel on to Galilee. Now, a lot of folks would have probably bowed their neck and said, I'm doing such a good work here, nobody's going to make me leave. And out of pride and arrogance, they would have stayed. But note this, Jesus wanted to do what was best for the cause of Christianity. He wanted to do what was best according to the Father's will. And so it is. It wasn't about arrogance. It was about humility. It was about righteousness that caused him to leave Judea. Now, as he was leaving Judea to go back to Galilee, Samaria lay in between. And most of you probably know that there was a lot of racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And many Jews would have chosen to travel around Samaria instead of going through it. It kind of makes us wonder, why would Jesus decide to travel through a place that most Jewish men would not have wanted to travel? Look again, if you will, at verse 4. When you read verse 4, it says, And he needed to go through Samaria. I like the King James here. The King James says, And he, has, and he must need go through Samaria. 
You see, the idea, even in the original language, is that John is telling us Jesus had a necessity to go through Samaria. In other words, it was divine will of the Father that caused Him to say, I'm going to leave Judea, and I'm going to go to Galilee, and I'm going to go through Samaria. Righteous choices place us on righteous paths. We have to decide to do the right things. Not right by our own eyes, but right by the sight of God to place us on those righteous paths. Now when we consider this, it brings us to a thought in this whole story. Now we'll look tonight at the well that they gathered around and the water that Jesus offered and etc. But I want you to think about something as we think about how our paths not only affect us, but our choices and the paths we travel affect so many other people also. Drop down with me, if you will, to John, the fourth chapter, and let's read verse 19 and 20. And as we read 19 and 20, I want you to be asking yourself the question, she's going to refer to a mountain that they worshipped on this mountain. Why? Why did they worship on this mountain? Look at 1920. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Why would she think that? Why would she say that? You can read back to all of the things and the commands that God gave. And God declared that Jerusalem was the holy city and it would be in Jerusalem that they would worship. Why would she say, our fathers taught us that we ought to worship in this mountain? Young people, your life and your choices not only places you on a path, but it places you on a path that may have an effect upon thousands and thousands of people for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'd like to spend the rest of the time this morning answering that question. Why did they believe that they should worship on that mountain? It goes back to two young people. Two young people, a thousand years before this occasion, made some poor decisions, poor choices that placed them on the wrong path. Drop back, if you will, with me to 1 Kings, the 12th chapter. 1 Kings, the 12th chapter. I hope you have your Bible open. If you need a pew Bible, it'll be on page 315. We'll have some of the verses that we're going to read on the screen, but not all the verses. And if you will, look with me to 1 Kings... As we look at 1 Kings, the 11th chapter, I'd like for you to notice just at the end of the 11th chapter, 41, 42, and 43, we see that Solomon has died. We had the great King David. We had his son Solomon. Both were great kings in many ways. But now that Solomon is dead, his son Rehoboam is supposed to be the next in line. We read about that as we go into the 12th chapter. But all the people come together in the third verse and they have something they want to say to this newly appointed king. Notice we begin reading in verse 4. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which was put on us and we'll serve you. So he said to them, depart for three days, come back to me, and the people departed. The king Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, and he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Let's pause here for a moment. See what's happened? 
He turns to the advisors that had been advising Solomon. They knew something about Solomon's mistake in his older years. He had asked too much of the people. Solomon had built a tremendous empire, a great kingdom, if you will. But yet it was at the expense of his people being overtaxed and overburdened in the labor. And so now this this young son comes to be the next king. The people say, we're not going to do this for another generation. We're not doing this for another father, for another king. We're not going to be to you as we were to your father. Now you can either lighten the load or we're rebelling against you. Now he does something pretty wise. He turns to people that have already seen this pathway before. They give their advice. Notice the humility that's involved in their advice. If you'll just listen to the people. Now, if you're over people at work, if, if, you're, uh, if you're a head of a family, if you have people that you are responsible for them, I want you to think about this lesson in leadership. If you'll just listen to the people. If you'll try to relieve their burdens. If he says you will serve them. They will follow you for as long as you live. Friends, that's a powerful lesson in humility and in leadership. To be willing to feel what other people feel. To be willing to listen to whatever their pains are. They turned to those that were older. They gave that advice, but when we read the very next verse, in verse 8 he says, He rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and consulted the younger men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. Now, he listened to the young people's advice. Look at verse 13. Then the king answered the people roughly, and rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. What a fool. To take what could have been such sound, godly advice and say, No, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to listen to my peers on this one. Now think about that, young people. Here's some men that have seen that path before. Here are others that are peers. They have never been on that road before. And instead of saying, what is righteous? What is moral? What is godly? What what can I learn from those that have walked this path before? They turn around and they say to their peers, what do you think I should do? Some people, please let this sink in. I love your peers. But your peers are probably not the best people to ask for advice. Let me give you an example that really is not that big, but just where you'll see what I'm talking about. It's always interesting to me when a senior turns to another senior in high school and they talk deeply about which college they ought to go to. One says to their friend, you really need to go to this school for this reason, this reason, this reason. You really know that path, don't you? You've been there. You know all about college. You know all about that college. Wouldn't it be a lot wiser to say, you know what? I want to talk to some people that have gone to that college. I want to talk to some people that have gotten degrees from that college. And I want to see if after they have traveled that path, if they think that's a path that a high school senior ought to travel. That makes a lot more sense 
than talking to a peer that knows the same as you know about a topic. But we do the same thing, and it's even more foolish in our relationship with God. We look to our peers when we ought to be asking God for the guidance and God for the wisdom. And so it is, He creates rebellion. And the result is, as we read further in this very same chapter, Jeroboam rises and he leads the northern kingdom that breaks away. You're probably aware of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's because of a young king's pride that there were ever two kingdoms uh, in the Old Testament. Now look with me, if you would, at 25, and let's see a terrible mistake that the other young man makes. Uh, Jeroboam now is king of the northern kingdom. But you see, he has a problem. He's king of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem is not in the northern kingdom. Now, they were all supposed to go down to Jerusalem. The men were supposed to go at least three times a year to worship and offer sacrifice to God in the special feast days. Is he going to allow his people to go down to Jerusalem when Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom? Let's see what he does with this. Let's begin reading at 25. We're still in uh, 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of his people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Oh, he's got a problem. If I let the people do what God has commanded them, I'm going to lose my kingdom. So I've got to think fast. As a matter of fact, in the middle of verse 33, the end of this chapter, he says, speaking about all he came up with, it says, which he had devised in his own heart. So what did he do? He came up with his own heart in verse 28 to build two golden calves. And he declared to the people that it was these calves that brought them out of Egyptian slavery. And then he built in 30 and 31 shrines and he appointed priests that were not of the Levitical tribe. In 32, he had to use his own devices of his heart to come up with the various feast days. And then what they would offer to those calves on the feast days. And again, 33 ends by saying, He devised all of this in his own heart. Now do you see where this lesson's going? Why did they ever get the idea that they were supposed to go up into mountains, not Jerusalem, and worship God? They got that idea through a king who operated out of fear. I'm so afraid the people will reject me. I'm so afraid the people may kill me. I want to challenge all of us here this morning. Let's make sure that we never decide what path to travel out of pride and arrogance. But instead, let's humbly say, I'm going to travel it because it's the righteous will of God. Let's make sure that we always, always courageously stand to travel the right paths not cowardly back down and choose another path because we are afraid. Young people, in a few months, those of you going off to college, there'll be a lot of things to do on Wednesday night. 
you'll have to decide if you'll make it a righteous priority and stand up and say, I'm going to Bible class. That's where I belong. I'm not afraid to say that. I'm committed to it. I'm not making that decision because it's convenient. I'm making that decision because it's righteous. You'll have a surrounding of peers that don't understand that. They won't understand why you won't stay up all night Saturday night and why you would ever set your alarm on Sunday morning to get up to go to worship. But you see, it's part of making a lifelong commitment to say, I know what path I want to be on. God's path. I hope our young people, I hope you realize that this is a time about God. It's not a time about you. Several years ago, I shared with you this story. I want to share it again because it's so perfect for this occasion. Miss Mayola England's aunt, when she was in college, she found out about a poor family, that the father was an alcoholic and didn't provide for his family. She went to the mother, and she asked the mother if she could bring her children to Bible class. She was a college student. She didn't even have a car. But she was going to make sure that those children would get to Bible class. And the mother revealed the fact they didn't have clothes. And Fern didn't have much money. But she said, I'll get the clothes some way. We'll get the clothes. So if I get the clothes, can I come and bring your children to Bible class? And the mother was somewhat hesitant because the children stayed nasty all the time. And Fern said, I'll be glad to come over on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings and I'll bathe all of your children and I'll dress them. I want to take them to Bible class. And the mother finally agreed. And she did this for years. In the meantime, the mother was converted to Christ also. Some of those children graduated the top of their class. Some of them went on to college. One of them's name was Jimmy. Jimmy has been a family friend of my family for decades. He came and lived with my family for a short while when I was a baby in Long Island as he raised the support to go do mission work in Africa. For decades, he's been in Kenya. His wife died while he was over there, and he married a native, and he's still there to this day doing mission work. And it was 50 years ago that a college student said, I want to give you a bath. I want to give you some clothes, and I want to take you to church. His daughter came back and sat in front of me in one of my classes in college at Freed Hardeman when I was there. And that's really how I learned this whole story. I knew them for a long time and never knew how they were converted to Christ. This morning, 
I want to urge you guys that are in college. You're looking for what your next move ought to be in life. I know there's a lot of heavy decisions. I want to beg you to realize now, whether you're, you're in your teens or if you're in your 80s or 90s and anything in between, now is the time to say, life is about God. I just want to be used in God's service and make the choices that place us on that path because just like Rehoboam and Jeroboam made mistakes that a thousand years later, Jesus is standing on earth correcting them. You and I can do things right so that a thousand years later, the good is still living on. This morning, if we can help you in any way, be a child of God, that's all we want to do. We want to be God's children. We want to be on His path. We want to be the church that belongs to Him, the people that are committed to Him. If you've never been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, but you're a believer, willing to repent of sins and confess before men, this morning would be a wonderful time to be baptized into Christ. Maybe you've been baptized into Christ, and somewhere along the way, you've made a choice or decisions that have placed you on a different path. And this morning, I'm not minimizing it, but it's really this simple. This morning, you may be saying, I just want to change paths. That's what God is in the business of doing, is helping us get onto the right path. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.